Later last year, uh, after the Pakistani government announced that it wanted to deport nearly 2 million refugees from Afghanistan, there was another component of that policy that was not talked about as much, which was a change in the immigration and movement uh, policy of the government of Pakistan that required people on the two sides of the Duran border to have a visa every time they cross the border. Now, that proved to be a much bigger issue than you might think, because a lot of the communities on both sides of the border have very constant interactions, trade, and family affairs. Uh, and the visa requirement meant that every single ordinary person had to present a valid visa almost multiple times uh, a, a day. In response to that policy, tens of thousands of people from both sides of the border traders, ordinary people, activists, political parties, gathered in Chaman for a sit-in that lasted um, for more than two months to pressure the Pakistani government to change that policy. And that sit-in, in a lot of ways, spoke to an incredible capacity uh, within uh, the Pashtun population uh, in the tribal belt uh, on the two sides of the border for mobilization and um, nonviolent movements. And that's exactly what we're talking about today, uh, to see uh, how we can understand these movements, how robust they are, and the opportunities and capacity that they present uh, for the future of the region. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cobblecast, a podcast series from Cobble Now that covers stories and analysis from Afghanistan and the region around it. I'm your host, Saeed Madadi. I'm very delighted uh, that my guest today is uh, Malaz Dawood, who is uh, a PhD candidate at the Free University of Berlin. Uh, he is also a senior research fellow at the Barcelona Center for International Affairs and the European Foundation for South Asian Studies. Um, Malaise has decades of work uh, on nonviolent movements and social movements of once in Pakistan. Um, and uh, he is currently working uh, on a project for Asia Foundation that tries to focus on uh, nonviolent movements among Pashtuns in Pakistan and uh, Afghanistan. So Malaise, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. What was happening in Chaman two, three months ago? Tell us a little bit about how it started. Is it still continuing? And, and, and who are the people who are sitting there? Who are the people who are mobilizing communities? Who are the leaders uh, at the forefront of the sitting? Thank you so much. Um, well, in Chaman, the, it's still continuing. Uh, we've had tens of thousands of people uh, uh, staging a sitting. And um, the sit-in is a relatively new phenomenon uh, when it comes to the Pashtun landscape of, of nonviolent resistance. Um, it was uh, popularized in 2018 when Nakhibullah Massoud, a young aspiring model, was social media model, was killed in Karachi by a notorious police officer. And then we had a coalition of different Pashtun political actors including the Pashtun so-called nationalist parties, uh, the Army National Party, and also the Pashtun Khormili Awami Party, uh, who converged on Islamabad 
And there they use the word parlat. Parlat and Pashto in Afghanistan is called Palato. Whereas Parlat and Waziristan Pashto is, is Charzanu in our in Persian, you know? And that means sitting cross-legged. Uh, and that that is sitin, what we call in, in English sitin. Uh, right now in Chaman, uh, it is not only the Pashtun Ta'afuz movement or Pashtun protection movement that was created after the sit-in in Islamabad in 2018. Uh, part of it is Pashtun Ta'afuz movement, uh, but it's a broader coalition of different actors, including traders and small traders whose livelihoods depend on the transit and trade between uh, Afghanistan and their communities uh, in Pakistan. Um, and the issue is the new uh, restrictions placed on them obviously is not practical. They cannot travel across the Union line uh, every time uh, acquiring a visa. and That's impossible for them. So what they are asking for is to have free movement across the Union line. Um, uh, the size of the protest uh, changes from day to day, um, but it's, it's been in tens of thousands some days, but never less than thousands. Um, so it's uh, predominantly men right now. And then we had Manzur Pashtin, the head of Pashtun Tarafas movement, PTM, who went to the sit-in, uh, delivered feisty speech, uh, and then from there, he traveled to the heart of the Baloch communities where he wanted to meet with the Dr. Maharang Baloch, uh, a woman leader of the Baloch uh, ethnic group um, who's staging their own setting. And from there, they wanted to continue to go to Islamabad. On the way, uh, Madhur Pashtun's uh, caravan was attacked by the Pakistani security forces. He was shot at, he was arrested, and uh, forcibly disappeared. He was produced to the courts uh, a few times, but again, uh, when he got bailed in all the cases against him, uh, he was again picked up by Pakistani security forces from the ideology. So, uh, he so he's still in an activity. Meeting with the, with the Baloch leaders. Yes, before he could meet the Baloch leaders. And then the Baloch leaders uh, continued their march to Islamabad. They're right now staging a sit-in in Islamabad. Back to the Chaman sit-in. How is the initial mobilization for Chaman done? How do people get together? How's the messaging done? And and talk a little bit about sort of the social dynamics there in terms of the level of education among people, the level of access to technology and internet and electricity and how easy messaging is to to sort of spread an invite for a sit-in uh, for people to, to come together. And, and, and second, one of the, one of the aspects of, of this, which is very important is a lot of the, the new faces that are showing up to mobilize people, these younger people, Manzur Pashtin, but also the likes of him. Where do they get their credibility? How are they actually moving people in this large numbers in a very tribal society? Um, the problem is I, I have a problem with the word tribal. It's orientalizing those communities. Um, uh -huh. Secondly, I take issue with the um, importance of education as such, uh, because education has also been a huge source of violence in our region, from the 
first Dubandi school or madrasa that was created. So education, it depends on the type of education. And the template that they are using, the, the initial mobilization that he called, actually it started in 1910s, so more than 100 years ago. That's what I call the initial mobilization. We have in sociology this uh, issue of structure. So the structure that we have there, it has embedded in itself a template for action. And this template for action was initiated by people like Bacha Khan or Sam, uh, Samad Khan, the Khan Shahid, in, in the southern part of the Pashtun Gavit. So all the movements and all the actors, all the leaders who've come after them, they've used the same mobilizing structure. If you look at the literature on social movements and collective action, we always say the existing mobilizing structures. So what are the existing mobilizing structures? And if you look at them, it's the same ecosystem that gives birth again and again and again to new movements. In 2015, when I started my PhD, I started looking at these movements. Um, and then I was in a conference with Muid Yusuf, uh, former Pakistani national security advisor. He told me that these are outliers. Forget about them. There were like 10, 15 people protesting against the uh, China-Pakistan economic corridor. And I was presenting my findings of this movement. Um, I told him, no, it's different. This time, things are happening. And the reason for that was that all the movements that came before PTM, these movements then were transformed slowly into political parties. So they became part of the, they, they got embedded in part of the Pakistani state. And they lost this, this zestfulness. They lost this edge that they had in which people were buying in. Whereas Manzur Pashtin used the same structure that was already there, not one are the, the, the components or, or, of, of this existing structure. So you have, in, in terms of PTM, you have former even uh, members of the Aumi National Party. You, have, you had some existing members of the Aumi National Party, some existing members of the Pakistani uh, the the Familia uh, Party, I can like Zaman uh, Kakar um, um, and so on and so forth, who first uh, created PTM together with Manzur Pashtin and others. Mohsin Dawar was the, in, in ANP. So these were the mobilizing structures. But then once ANP and PKMP, they did not continue resisting, some of them. They separated their way. They mm -hmm. stayed with BTM or created new parties like Mohsen Dawa's National Democratic Movement uh, and others stayed with their party. So those political parties were part of the mobilizing structure. And then you also have kinship, solid, solidarity structures. So Khaldun's concept of solidarity, you clearly see it. So in places like Waziristan, you saw a broad coalition of the Masood, Dawar, and Waziri tribe. So you had Mazur Pashtin from the Masood tribe, you had um, Mohsen Dawar from the Dawar tribe, and you had Ali Wazir from the uh, Wazir tribe, the, the three main leaders of PTM. And the youths, they using social media, 
using the, the access to open knowledge, they have reimagined their relationship with Pakistan, with the Pakistani state. They no longer buy into the idea of Pakistan. So many of them. Like the main What does that mean when you say they're they're not buying into the idea of Pakistan? They 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 want a different Pakistan or they they don't want Pakistan at all. That's a good that could also be interpreted as separatist tendency. Is that it? Or or they want to redefine Pakistan as a state or what it has not come past seventy years or so. There is an ongoing discussion within the movement and also by the supporters of the movement from outside. People like Dr. Farhat Taj, who was a great supporter of the movement first, and then she became a critic of the movement. She's a Sweden-based scholar. For example, she was the one who coined the idea of the negotiation of the social contract between the Pashtuns and the Pakistani state. And then people like Dr. Zubair, who was based in the U.S., he supported the idea. He's a constitutional lawyer, by the way. But then within the movement, you have people like, uh, there's this poet, I forgot his name, his poet. And every time he po posts a poem in, in Facebook or Twitter, he gets tens of thousands of engagements. He clearly wears the Afghan flag. Every time there's a cricket match between Pakistan and Afghanistan, he supports Afghanistan. Overwhelmingly, all the members of PTM, they support Afghanistan. They clearly say we are not Pakistanis, we are Afghans. One of the main chants in their protests is Lara Obar Yaofran. The Afghans in the upper Afghanistan and also lower Afghanistan because their geography is lower, they are one Afghan, they say. You cannot, you cannot separate us. So even if the, the message right now or the main goal right now is not separatism, the narrative is there. The narrative is being built. This is, this is something very interesting. And I really liked your earlier reservation or observation about my question of calling the society tribal, which might have some, some orientalist undertoning to it. But at the same time, when you say the, the, the kinships play a role in, in mobilization and how people sort of leverage credibility being from Masood tribe, being from Wazir tribe, being from Dawa tribe, and, and, and how they, they come together to mobilize a larger community. And on top of that, you say that there is this narrative of Laraubar Yaw Afghan connecting to a, a, a broader ethnic identity that, that crosses what might be considered international borders, how is that not tribal? And I'll ask the question not necessarily understand. considering tribal as a, as a derogatory um, uh, characterization. But but so so these these sociopolitical aspects of the, of of the society, how do you characterize them? Instead of calling them tribal. No, identity politics has been there, as you know, in our region for a very long time. We see shades of it in the Western societies right now. It is several. I live in Germany, you know, so so identity has become a, the key currency in politics. 
in the U.S. with Donald Trump and his movement, identity has become a key uh, currency in politics. It's the same thing there. We are not different in that sense. They are not different in that sense. But still, but even, but, 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 but just to, sorry to interrupt you quickly here, but even in the West, when there's conversations about the rise of identity politics around the election of Donald Trump or what's happening in Hungary around Viktor Orban or others in, across Europe and elsewhere, one of the, one of the terminologies used is that, that we are returning to some aspects of tribal politics. And, 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 and sociopolitical scientists and observers are considering uh, using that terminology as, as a way of describing the return to, um, to a way of relating um, um, to each other in the society and to the broader community, which is not necessarily based on the, the, the modern civic values that we have built Collectively, one would say, in a late nineteenth and twentieth century, for example, mm. and it shows you the how flawed the concept was. So the concept that you can create borders, separating different entities, different totalities uh, within the same hu human totality, it is a flawed concept. Anyhow, that's a different discussion. But here, mm. um, that's Another aspect that is important is the uh, state of state formation in that region. So anyone who thinks that we have clear borders, um, we have in the Vibarian state, uh, Vibarian sense, uh, we have states, um, we are not there yet. And it clearly shows in the Pashtun communities. In the Pashtun communities, uh, you've probably been there. If you go like along the Duran line, you literally see one house on both sides of, of the line. Um, and they're like, how can you tell us, if I stand in my living room, I'm Pakistani. If I stand in my uh, bedroom, then I'm, I'm an Afghan, you know? So in that sense, they don't have... How much of that is inevitable and how much of that is a very deliberate effort to prevent clear demarcation of... Of the board, both. I mean, there have there have been political actors and forces throughout the history, from Khalifah Khan Khatak up to now, who've contested the idea of separating Pashtuns. And you referred to it before this discussion when Yahya Khan came to power in Pakistan. He entrenched Pashtuns in the in the in the Pakistani yeah. army. Yeah. So you had way more Pashtuns that are like the second biggest and second most powerful group within the Pakistani army right now after the Punjabis. But that's not only now. If you look at also the history of India, the Suris uh, in India, for example, the first currency in India was created by them, you know, the rupiah. So, so they, but they were Pashtuns. Pashtuns have traditionally been embedded within the polities that have existed in India for thousands of years. So at times you've had these separate entities, is, at times you've had entities that had different ethnic groups represented in India. And right now, there is this discussion going on. There is this contention happening. Also within the Pashtun movements there, 
but also around this question, who are we? Mahmoud Khan the leader, one of the main leaders of Pashtun there, he says, I was first Pashtun, then became a Muslim, and now I'm a citizen of Pakistan. So he says, yeah, I have a Pakistani passport, but if you look at it, first and foremost, I was a Pashtun, and then I was converted to Islam. And now they've given me this Pakistani passport so that I can travel, you know, I can buy property and so on and so forth. So the Pashtun identity is extremely important. It's deeply entrenched. And that is the reason that the Pakistani state, despite all the concessions that they've made uh, to Pashtuns, they've struggled time and again with movements who've contested the, the fundamental idea of Pakistan, number one. And number two, they've used to a certain degree of success, they've used Islam or the religion as a counterforce to Pashtun identity. That's why you have mullahs on the one side and you have uh, khans and progressive leaders on the other side. In the 80s and 70s and 80s, you also had a number of Pashtuns who went to the Soviet Union, studied there. They also came back with the ideas of Marxism, revolution, and so on and so forth, and secularism. One of the reasons ANP keeps calling itself a secular force is obviously Bacha Khan's teachings, but also the people who went to Soviet Union came back with these ideas. So you also have these pockets of foreign Marxists still in the Pashtun communities in Pakistan who are lending support to non-violent movements of Pashtuns right now. So these are the mobilizing structures. They've created a broad coalition uh, that uh, from time to time protests, from time to time uh, stage sit-ins, from time to time uh, run uh, Twitter trends, uh, from time to time uh, create um, social media storm to take Pakistani state accountable. Uh, this is this is fascinating. I mean, the scale and and the sustainability of these movements, at least since it initially started in 2014, much more robustly than it used to be back in the day, is 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 something very impressive. And and I still think we we do not talk about it with the level of depth and nuance that that we should talk. But one of one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is how influential these movements have been, at least in the recent decade, uh, with the rise of PTM and 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 others. Uh, how much they have been able to change government policies? How much they have been able to convince or force the state authorities and state institutions into making a compromise with the community or in the benefit of the community? The Pakistani state has used both carrot and stake in, in dealing with the movement, with PTM particularly. Um, I think the main indicator for the effectiveness of PTM is the landscape of terrorism right now in the so-called former tribal areas in Pakistan. It has changed drastically. Mazur Pashtin, one of the reasons why he started his activism was because his family was part of the 1.2 million people that were forcibly moved from Waziristan 
by the Pakistani army so that it could conduct its military operation against the so-called terrorists. And then when this happened, it was a key moment for Mazur Pashti to turn against Pakistani state and say, on the one hand, you're lending support to the Taliban. On the other hand, you're in the, making the excuse of, of attacking the same Taliban. You're removing us from our homes. You're killing our people. You're planting mines in our, in our fields and so on and so forth. Right now, it is not happening on that scale. And the reason for that is, look at SWAT a few months ago, I guess six, seven months ago. There were a couple of attacks in SWAT. There were musings that some Taliban members are coming back to SWAT. You had tens of thousands of, of people on the streets. There are videos from Waziristan, from SWAT, from Bajor, where you see a few Taliban walking down the street, and you see hundreds of people chanting anti-Taliban chants and going after them, sometimes driving them into the, uh, into the barracks of the Pakistani military forces. So they've created this war, a firewall against terrorism. That's really important. There you see, you see the impact of the movement. Number two, right now Imran Khan and his party are one of well, the biggest headache for the Pakistani army. And they're using the same slogan that PTM created. This terrorism that you see, behind it is the uniform, which means the, the military. Arm. They created a situation in Pakistan that had never happened before. Pakistani army, number one, the perception was it's invincible. Number two, it is, you cannot criticize it. Now everyone has comes out and criticizes it, thanks to PTM, thanks to people like Mazur Pashtim, because they created this opening. All of a sudden, the generals are feeling the heat. All of a sudden, the military forces passing through a, a busy road, they hear the people saying, you are a terrorist. That had never happened in Pakistan before. People are expecting a little, a little too much from these movements. But incrementally, if they continue this, you can see that the heat will continue to rise for the Pakistani generals. Interesting. Now, you mentioned something about the, the perception among the people that behind the terrorism in Pakistan is, is the army. The, the two versions of the Taliban that we have in the region, the Taliban in Afghanistan, that has much closer ties to the military establishment in Pakistan and the TTP, which seems to be fighting with the Pakistani government and the Pakistani military. Now, the TTP also comes from the same tribes that the PTM mobilizes people. So, first, how come that does not sort of make the these movements an ally of the Pakistani state in its fight against the TTP. But more importantly, how does that internal dynamic within the community plays among the sort of between the, the TTP leaders or the TTP constituency and the constituencies that these uh, nonviolent movements mobilize? Okay, the 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 contention between the mullahs 
and the Khans uh, and other actors within these tribes has been there for more than a century, even I would say 200 years now. Um, and mullahs were mainly in the pockets of the British uh, Raj before the U.S. came in uh, with its deep pockets in 1980s during the Afghan Jihad. And it tipped the scale in favor of the mullahs, of the clergy. When that happened, then they started this vicious campaign of getting rid of all their opponents and critics. Not only uh, on the Pakistani side of the Durand line, also on the other side of the Durand line. Now, what that culminated in was people like Ali Wazir lost 17 members of his families to attacks of TTP. So, and when PTM was created and TTP announced its support to PTM, the first thing they did was like, no, we don't need your support. You've been killing us. You've been veritable arm of the Pakistani army. You did all this in cahoots with the Pakistani army. That's one side of it. I don't know how you can kind of um, delineate the, these boundaries between TTP and the Afghan um, Taliban and then the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistani army, you know? The mobilization from the clergy and non-clergy has continued for hundreds of years. It was the discrepancy in resources that made the clergy a much more powerful entity. And those resources came from the U.S., from Saudi Arabia, through Pakistani army. And now that Pakistan is struggling economically, now that, uh, I, I mean, before I, I go to, to this point, obviously this culminated in the clergy becoming so powerful that finally it could have a whole country, Afghanistan. Now, once the resources dried up in Pakistan, the clergy has become weaker. If you listen to people like Mawlana Fazal Rahman, for example, if you ask him why in Afghanistan, jihad was justified, but not in Pakistan. It tells you that in Pakistan, at least in his network, there are 400,000 mullahs who freely live their lives, who freely say whatever they want to say, who freely do whatever they want to do. So the Pakistani army had ceded part of its sovereignty, part of the sovereignty of the state, to clergy. The issue with Lal Masjid al-Musharraf was not the issue of Lal Masjid being there. It was because they were transgressing. Within the Lal Masjid, they had their own sovereignty. But they came out. They started implementing their version of Islam on people in Islamabad. And then there was this clash of sovereignty of Pakistan and the clergy. And right now, the movements like PTM and other non-clergy movements they're trying to take back some of the space from the clergy. On the Afghan side, because you didn't have these mobilizing structures before, the ones that were created in, by Bacha Khan and Khan Shade in Pakistan, that's why you don't have that space. On the other side, you have the space and people are prepared to die for it, prepared to sacrifice their lives. So the... the Nonviolent movements among Pashtuns, particularly in Pakistan, 
where does their sustainability come from? Where does the, their resilience come from? In the face of, for example, the rise of extremism in the hands of the Taliban, in the face of government uh, opposition and brutality and detainment and repressive policies and all of that. So why are they as resilient as they are? It's pure motivation. Um, if I remember Ali Khan, son of Bacha Khan, was once asked what he thought of his father, of his great father, you know. And he said he was a great leader, uh, but he shouldn't have had any children because he was never there for us. Because he had dedicated his entire life. He had sacrificed his family, his wealth, his well-being for the cause. But yeah, other than the personal motivation, there must be something in 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 the uh, either in environment in, in the sort of time or in the sociopolitical environment that produces these leaders. Like you cannot say that. No, it is mobilization. In in another part of right, for example, hundreds of miles uh, east, um, west in Afghanistan, for example, you, you do not have anybody committed. And on, on that side, you have everybody committed. So, so there must be something in, in, in the sociopolitical structure that produces these movements that gives resilience to them or that produces the type of leaders that we have seen uh, rise among the people. Yes, as I said, this, there's, first of all, the existing structures and templates. And if you look at the... Doug McAdams' book, uh, The Black uh, Insurgency, um, I don't exactly remember the title of them. He uses the political process model. In the model, he identifies three factors. Number one, he calls it the cognitive liberation. Cognitive liberation is, first of all, you put a tag on what is happening. Oh, injustice. For example, in the US, racism. Number two, then you say, there is a prescription. We can do something about it. So that's cognitive liberation. And for this, he says, narrative building, education, and awareness are key. And then the two other components, what is called the political uh, opportunity and constraint structure. So how open or closed the system is, how strong the repression is from the state or whatever officer you have there, um, uh, how potent that opposition is, and how organized you are as an organization, how committed you are. And then number three is the resources, your access to resources. And resources, not only equipment, money, um, participants, and so on and so forth. It's also strategy. It's also skills. Now, in, in, in the Pashtun communities on the other side of the Duran line, what is happening is that they have this. They have the analysis. Like, they analyze every action. In uh, in terms of what Bajah Khan was doing, why he chose to non-violence over violence. He was part of the Hijrat movement. I don't know if you know about this. When Turkey was one of the losers of the First World War and Britain was one of the winners, there was this movement by the Muslims in British India who said, oh, we have to resist this in support of Turkey. We have to now wage a campaign against the Britishers. And one of the key components of the campaign was to immigrate to Afghanistan. So their mass migration from India, the Muslims, into Afghanistan. And Bashar Khan was part of that. Anyhow, so the story is long, but 
he realized there that number one, violence doesn't work. Even if we try, and we they tried a few political actors, it doesn't work. So he his belief in nonviolence became much firmer. And number two, that we have to organize. And for organization, we need alternative education. So he did two things. He created the Pashtun Journal. Pashtun Journal, can you imagine the 1920s? Today we don't have a proper standard Pashtun newspaper. In 1920s. And then, second thing was, he created alternative schools called Azad schools. He went from village to village, created at least 500 schools. He walked for years. And that education remained in people. Azad school network, even today, is a counter force to the Madrasa network in Pakistan. The students who come out of the Azad school system, they're much more liberal. But at the same time, they're very disciplined very organized. And that is the kind of structure that we don't have in the Afghan in the Pashtun communities in Afghanistan. This is this is a fascinating point. And it reminds me of of the school that I went to in Kabul, uh, the Marfat High School, which which has a similar sort of notion behind it. It's a community based private school. The the tuition is is very, very low. Back in the days when I when I was attending the school, a month's tuition was a hundred and sixty hours, and that's three dollars back in the day per month, three dollars. And wow. to this day, no graduate of the school has failed the the university entrance exam in Afghanistan, and the students has made to to some of the the top universities in the world, you know, from Stanford to Chicago to Oxford and elsewhere, and. Uh, exactly what you said, that students are much more liberal, much more principled. And when, when I was a student, but also when I, when I graduated and I, and I look back at my own experience and, and, and the school that continued, one of the fascinating things was that the school didn't have anything in, in terms of as a, as a magic formula. There was no new yeah. teacher in school. There was no abundance of financial resources or sort of technological equipment of, of, of any sort. But when I was studying at school, a lot of the teachers were people who were teaching in public high school for half a day, and they were coming to teach in this school. But the outcome was absolutely opposite of each other. Here... They would produce totally different students. There was there was a little bit of similar dynamics at the American University of Afghanistan. That some of the professors who were coming from Kabul University were totally different people with different outcomes in their academic spaces at the American University when compared to the uh, to the public university in Kabul, for example. But but here, you you talked so much about. The this broader idea of Pashtun as a community, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that the deer in line is a border is almost non-existent in the physicality of life for people, but also in their thinking, in their mindset. Cautious, um, cautious. Right, in their consciousness. If you, t among Pashtuns in Afghanistan, there's a very strong connection to the community on the other side of the line. And there's a lot of recognition of the leaders on the other side. There's a lot of familiarity with them. 
Mm-hmm. So with all of this, it's it struck me as a as a surprise that all of these practices, all of these political structures um, on that side of the line didn't cross here. Yeah, that that we that we failed on the Afghanistan side of the border to develop collective capacity as such to mobilize. One could even I I I would argue that that might be one of the 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 most instrumental elements that we might need in Afghanistan. Uh, a, a nonviolent movement that's liberal, that's partially secular among Pashtuns to actually get out of the vicious cycles that we're having with the Taliban and similar groups throughout our, 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 our recent history. So why it hasn't happened here? Why yeah, these practices and capacities have not crossed the border? Okay, first, let me start with this, okay? I mean, I've seen many scholars who say the wonders that we've had, uh, we may have uh, uh, harnessed nuclear energy. We may have uh, created supercomputers, but these are not the main inventions of the humanity. It's the invention of organization. It's like, for example, the banking system, 8 billion people buy into it. Mm-hmm. How is that even possible? You know. So that is the main wonder. And that's exactly the same logic that you have to see trickle down on micro level. The problem is that you need social entrepreneurship. Social entrepreneurs, what they do is they fracture the, the existing structures. They create a new reality for people. And this reality was created by people like Bacha Khan and, uh, and uh, Pashtun communities uh, in Pakistan. When Gene Sharp worked with the former U.S. Army colonel in 1950s, Gene Sharp was one of the main philosophers of nonviolence, and he saw how this colonel was thinking, and then he took elements of uh, training of the army, of the U.S. Army, and kind of appropriated it into his own handbooks on nonviolent strategizing and resistance, he was amazed. And he saw how important it is to have that kind of discipline like an army has and training and training and training and training. But little did he know that Bacha Khan had already done that. Bacha Khan had an army, he called it army, of at least 100,000 nonviolent activists. They literally had ranks, general, colonel, major, and so on and so forth in their army. But they were nonviolent. They literally had parades. They had classes. They had physical training. Everything that you expect from an organized army. In that organization, just like your school in Kabul, that organization, that culture comes when you spend years and years of doing the same thing. This pattern Repeating this pattern creates structures. That's what we call. That's what Anthony Giddens called structures. When he says, again, "How how did that how did that practice stop right on the Durban line? Why didn't the the development of those organizations, those collective practices, cross the line and develop among Pashtun communities in the southern and eastern Afghanistan? It, it didn't stop there." We had Khudai Khidmatgars, Khudai Khidmatgar moved or Bacha Khan in Afghanistan. I was the deputy of Dr. Farooq Wardag in the Constitution Commission. Lakhdar Brahimi was the UN Special Representative to Afghanistan. 
uh, Hamid Karzai was the head of the interim uh, authority. Um, Farouk Wardang used to tell me that forget about Hamid Karzai. The president of this country is Lakhzad Brahimi. We report to him whatever we do in terms of constitutional matters. It would blow my mind. And then the same person comes around 20 years down the line, sits with the current foreigners of Taliban, applauds their jihad, tells them that they are the heroes that kicked out for two countries or so on and so forth. The same person who used to say that the UN special representative was the leader of the country. And we had to be blind to that leader, not to the leader, the Afghan leader. The same person that comes back, tries to hijack the narrative of jihad, you know? And that is the problem that we, it was pervasive in our civil society. It was pervasive in our political class. And that created this gap and we didn't, we couldn't never mobilize. Now, that's, uh, we've been talking uh, for so long about this issue from from various angles. Now, what would it take to de develop the type of capacity among Pashtuns in Afghanistan that you have in Pakistan with the specific caveat, I would say, and that caveat is um, not necessarily sort of mutually exclusive with the 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 community wide uh, or the community oriented mobilization around Pashtuns on both sides of the border, but also um, side by side with that, with 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 the more Afghanistan focused um, uh, narrative that would be able to relate to the communities in Herat and Badakhshan and 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 Bamiyan, if not stronger, at least as strongly as they would relate and communicate with communities on the other side of the line for the sake of sort of a more national mobilization that's that's more peaceful, that's more secular, that's more liberal and open-minded, if possible, for Afghans. And what would it take? Three things. I was speaking to uh, uh, the Egyptian activists a few years ago, um, and uh, the moment I mentioned the Facebook revolution of 2010, they went per sec. They were like, it was not Facebook revolution. I don't know, in 1994, my uncle was standing this one person in Tahrir Square holding a banner against the Gavzi. And then the next year there were two people. And then the next year there were 10 people. So basically they said there was this process and it required immense sacrifice by the, the, the initiators of the process. So starting from somewhere, it's really important that somebody like Bacha Khan, that somebody like this guy whose uncle was the first one that protested against Mubarak, that somebody starts somewhere. And the Afghan women have started that. That's one thing. So start somewhere, start small with one person, with two people. Forget about national, forget about district level, forget about provincial, forget about ethnic, forget about, I don't know, cobble wide. No, just somewhere, one voice. And it's important to raise a voice. That's one thing. Second thing, Try to become very strategic about it. 
you have to have a think tank without your mood that analyzes the situation continuously, devises strategies to address the uh, different challenges, and at the same time, to continue building pressure on the authorities. I don't know if you've read this book, it's called The Logics of History by uh, Sun. There he talks about eventful history, and he talks about certain events that all of a sudden fracture the structure of the society. It mainly focuses on the French Revolution and then gives birth to a completely different structure. So the event of the self-immolation of uh, Muhammad in, in uh, Tunisia, that sparked the mobilization was already happening in all these Arab countries. It's not that that, that one, uh, that killing of himself, no, the mobilization was happening, but they instrumentalized this event so well to create a storm. The event of the killing of Nakibullah Masood in Karachi that created the Af the, the Pashtun uh, strength. So you have to pay attention to these key events and how you can use them in your advantage. And the third thing is creating alternative institutions in the literature on nonviolence, you call them alternative programs, and space. The mullahs have used mosques so efficiently, so effectively, that it just blows your mind. So creating these, even the smallest of the spaces, and creating alternative institutions, like your school, Marifat School, to change the narrative slowly, giving birth to a new narrative. And then, once you do that, you have a few committed people creating discipline. You know this. I think that's a, that's a very, very important point to, to close with, which is the need to take a very long-term perspective to these issues, to not, to not hurry because it takes a very long period of time for collective and social capacities to develop or for the, these capacities and structures to have their resilience to weather different ups and downs and different periods of, of adversity. So we, we will live at that with better hopes for, for the country. So thank you very much, Malaise, for your time and for this very fascinating conversations. Uh, thanks to our audience for listening in. This was Cobblecast. Yeah, until next time, uh, take care and goodbye.